wife and I have been here in Singapore for this past week. Uh, we arrived last Friday morning and we fly out after lunch today uh, to go on to Seoul in South Korea for some conferences there next week. So it's been a great joy to be here sharing with different churches and different Christian friends during this week and a special privilege to share Good Friday morning with you. Uh, I want us to look at this passage from Isaiah which you'll find is on the Uh, back of the service sheet, uh, printed down at the bottom there, and it may be useful to have that with you. And also, um, our friends are going to put up some of the verses as we go through, so that we can see them on the wall here and follow through for ourselves. And we're thinking about the meaning of Good Friday, the significance of the cross of Jesus. Now, almost everyone knows that the symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. Uh, We see it on the outside of church buildings, often it's on the top of the roof, Christians sometimes wear it as a necklace. Uh, It's been the subject of many great works of art. Some of the most amazing paintings ever uh, painted have been about the cross of Jesus Christ. But when you stop to think about it, that's rather a strange thing, isn't it? Because the cross is an emblem of death. And not just any death, but a death that is the most degrading, uh, the most painful and hideous form of death, perhaps ever devised by human brutality. And so it would seem on the surface to be a strange thing that here we are, 2,000 years later, gathered together, remembering, even celebrating, an appalling execution of an innocent young man in Israel all those centuries ago. And yet all around the world today, millions and millions of Christians will be remembering the cross of Jesus Christ. And why should we have come to call this day of all days Good Friday? It seems as though that is the last word that you would use to describe what happened outside Jerusalem all those centuries ago. Now, for some of us, it may seem a sort of consolation for us. It's a sort of way of coming to terms with a great human tragedy. A lady said to me not long ago, Wasn't it a pity that Jesus died at the age of 33? Just think, she said, how much good he could have done in the world if he'd lived for another 50 years. And and you can understand that people look at it like that, that it's just a terrible tragedy that he was cut off at the prime of life and that he was such a good man and he did so many good things. What a, what a, a dreadful thing that he should suddenly be deprived of his life. So is it all a terrible mistake? Is it uh, somehow uh, a story of great intentions that went horribly wrong? Um, A miscalculation, an error of enormous proportions. And have we Christians just simply elevated the death of Jesus as an icon of undeserved suffering and of bearing that suffering with courage and dignity in the midst of the most appalling personal stress and injury. Well, if that's what you think, let me tell you that is not the Bible's view of the church, of the cross. Listen to what one of Jesus' closest and dearest followers, the Apostle Simon Peter, speaking to the Jewish religious authorities about what happened on Good Friday. This is what he says. It's in the New Testament in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3. Peter says, The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pontius Pilate. You killed the author of life, but God 
has raised him from the dead. So this was uh, the way in which Peter looked at the cross just a few days or weeks after it happened. It was no accident. God's work was being done. God's purpose was being fulfilled from beginning to end. And then in the next chapter of the same New Testament book, the Acts, here are the early Christians praying to God. This is what they say to him. Herod, that's the Jewish king, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And now listen to this sentence. They did what your power and will had determined beforehand should happen. Very important sentence. They did what God's power and will had determined beforehand should happen. So the Bible says the cross of Jesus is no accident. This is no terrible error. This was the goal of God's great purposes down through the centuries. And that's why we read a few moments ago an amazing Old Testament passage which prophesies the New Testament festival of Easter in terms of the death and resurrection of God's special agent in the world, his Messiah, his anointed king, the son of God who came into this world. It was written by the prophet Isaiah and this is the thing to notice, it was written 700 years before it happened. 700 years. Good Friday is how God has fulfilled this and many other prophecies which you'll find in the Old Testament and how the Jesus who came into this world, the Christ who appeared first at Bethlehem as a baby, grew up in Nazareth, ministered in Galilee and in Jerusalem and eventually at 33 was nailed to that cross of wood. How this Christ came specifically to suffer and to die for us. Because you see the gospel story, the New Testament message, is that Jesus Christ is God himself in human form, the man who is God, on a rescue mission to save the human race. And what Isaiah was uh, enabled by God to foresee is not just a prediction, but it's a divine explanation of why it needed to happen, of the purpose and meaning of the cross. Now, it's one of the most famous of Old Testament passages. If we had a lot of time or several sermons, we could divide it up. It's a long poem. It starts in chapter 52, and it has five sections in it. We're going to just look at uh, sections three and four, particularly this morning. But it's a poem all about the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ. And that term means God's king whom he has set apart to do his particular work. The Messiah is someone who comes with the authority of God because he is God in human form. Truly man, truly God. Not simply to show us what God is like, not simply to provide us with a master class in what it is to be a human being, though he does that, but supremely to rescue us. To rescue us from our sin, from our wrong mistakes, from our rebellion, to rescue us from everything that would otherwise separate us from God and mean that we had no relationship with him. 
And so as we look together at Isaiah 53, I want to try and build the picture first of all and then we'll focus in uh, towards the end of the talk on verses 4 to 6 especially because that is where the explanation comes to its fulfilment. We are used to having... um, uh, in our sort of uh, our, our way of thinking, an argument that develops and comes to a conclusion. The Hebrew way of thinking is usually to have a central idea in the middle of the poem, in this case verses 4 to 6, and for that to be the key thing that affects everything else around it. So let's begin um, where the poem begins, and uh, maybe we can look at chapter 52, verse 13. I think it may uh, uh, come up on the screen for us which uh, reminds us that uh, the poem starts by God saying, look, see, here is my servant. And he prophesies, first of all, the resurrection. That's very interesting, isn't it? It says, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's what happened to Jesus after the cross. He was raised from the dead. We'll be celebrating it on Easter morning. He was exalted in the ascension to the right hand of God. And where is Jesus now? He's reigning as the king of the universe. But look at what he had to go through before that happened. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. That's a picture of the cross. When Jesus went to that cross, he'd already been flogged by the Romans with a great whip which had uh, jagged metal in it that lacerated the back. And Roman flogging was a terrible thing. He had a crown of thorns wedged down on his head. Uh, He was degraded and derided. He had to carry his own cross, though he was exhausted, uh, until someone else was made to carry it for him. And so this picture is of the appalling brutality of his death the flogging, the piercing, the spear that was later thrust into his side, the nails that were put through his hands and feet. And 700 years before it happens, even before crucifixion is even thought of, this picture is painted about the Son of God. Um, And so, it reminds us that this is going to have an impact on the whole world. If you look at 15 there, he will sprinkle many nations, that is, make them clean, Kings will recognise him. They will shut their mouths because of him. It's a picture of the whole world recognising that this is God the King at work in his world. And the second part of the poem, uh, in chapter 53, verses 1 and 2, recalls his earthly ministry. It starts with that question, is this really how God is at work? Is this the arm of the Lord? Is this God revealing himself? Well, what happened to Jesus? Look at uh, sentence one there. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. Now, that means he was very vulnerable. If you know the story of the New Testament, you'll know that when he was first born in Bethlehem, he was born into poverty-stricken circumstances. Uh, The king, Herod at the time, was very frightened about the messianic prophecies and he therefore arranged for the massacre of the baby boys who'd been born in Bethlehem over a period of two years. Jesus' life was a threat right from the very beginning. He was like a a root in dry ground. If a root grows up out of dry ground, it's going to wither and fade unless it's nourished. Reminds us that when God came, he came with no special privileges into this world. He made himself vulnerable to the worst things that we could possibly suffer. He had no human charisma, which led people to fall at his feet. So it says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing 
in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't a great media celebrity. He didn't have people queuing up uh, to cry uh, out in praise of him. Had people queuing up to be healed, because that was a blessing that they wanted. But although his miracles were enormously welcome to people, his teaching was largely rejected. So you see, we come into a situation where this poem is telling us details about a life that's going to be lived hundreds of years before it happens. And I'd like to just put with that uh, verses 7 and 8 and 9 of, uh, he, of uh, Isaiah 53 before we come to our, our main section because we're trying to build up the, the whole picture of what the Bible tells us. Verse 7 there, he was oppressed and afflicted. You remember how that happened? He was betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. He was uh, arrested in the garden of Gethsemane at night when he was praying. He was marched off for a series of trials that were not just trials at all. There was really no charge against him. He was hounded to his death, although he was innocent in every way of all offences. And the comparison is made between Jesus in number seven there, being like a sheep that is being led to the slaughter. That, of course, is not just an image. It's teaching a profound fact because all the Jews who heard Isaiah would know that when a sheep was going to the slaughter, one of the reasons why it might be slaughtered would be as a sacrifice in the temple for the sins of the people. And so Jesus becomes, as he himself declared himself to be, the Lamb of God who carries away the sins of the world. So Isaiah builds up this picture, you see, of what is going to happen centuries before it happens. There was no prolonged defence in his trial. He refused to answer his questioners, apart from a few remarks. He was cut off and he was deprived of life at the very peak of his um, maturity. And then if we just look at verses 8 and 9 as well to complete this picture, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who, who protested? Peter got out a sword and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers, but that was the only protest there was. They all ran away. Nobody said this is an unjust lynching of a man for no good reason. Again, it's all predicted long before it happens. He was cut off from the land of the living. And look at that last part. It was for the transgression of my people. More about that in a moment. But then the other thing that is prophesied here is that during his death he will be associated both with the wicked and with the rich. Now he belonged to neither category. He was a perfect man who lived a perfect life, the only man on earth who has ever done that. He was not wicked in any way. He always fulfilled the Father's will. You know how God told us in the scriptures that what he wants from us as his Human creation is that we should love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves. And the Lord Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's command. He always did the Father's will and his love and compassion for the people around him was legendary. So, he wasn't a wicked man and he certainly wasn't a rich man. At his death, the only thing he had was his clothing and the soldiers gambled for that at the foot of the cross. Uh, so that they would, um, one of them would have it because uh, the robe was a seamless robe and they didn't want to split it up between them. Jesus had nothing of this world's riches. But he had nothing of this world's sin. 
He had nothing to die for. And yet, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And that means, of course, that when the Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, the grave that those thieves would have was the cross. If you were crucified outside Jerusalem in that first century world, then you would hang on the cross for several days until decomposition set in and was really advanced. And then the bodies would just be taken down and thrown on the municipal rubbish heap, which was a burning fire outside Jerusalem. That was the grave that Jesus should have gone to as a crucified criminal. But he made his grave with the rich in his death. Because you know how the Gospels tell us that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man who believed in Jesus as the Son of God, went to the Roman governor at great personal risk and asked for the body of Jesus to be taken down when they proved that he really was dead. And he and Nicodemus took that body, anointed it with spices, placed it in the rich man's tomb in Joseph's garden. That's what you had if you were wealthy. You had your own garden with your own tomb ready to receive you at the end of your life. And he uses his tomb to receive Jesus. So on Friday he's dying on the cross between the criminals. On Saturday he's buried in the rich man's tomb. And on Sunday the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. And the risen Jesus appears to his disciples, having conquered not only sin and the devil, but death and hell. He is the victor over all of these hostile powers. Now, that is all prepared, let me remind you again, 700 years before it happens. And it's not the only part of the Old Testament. If you read Psalm 22 when you go home, you'll see there a description of the cross, again written probably even before Isaiah's writing eight or nine hundred years before it all happened. Now, that can only happen if God is at work in this. See, I want you to see, and I want to just challenge you with this, how do you account for the accuracy of these detailed predictions 700 years before they happened, unless it's God's work? It's entirely accurate to God's plan. And it all came to fulfilment, just as God had predicted, because this is his rescue mission for the whole human race. And that's why the song ends with the triumph of Easter morning that the one who was crucified will rise again and bring eternal life to all who trust in him. So is there any other explanation for all these predictions coming true in one man at one point in history? The likelihood is infinitesimal that one person would fulfil them all. Jesus couldn't control these events. Uh, he didn't engineer it all. The disciples certainly couldn't. They were scared stiff. They thought they were the next ones to be crucified. They ran away. Nobody engineered them. But God foretold them, so that when it happens, generations of people down through the centuries ever since have said, this is the hand of God at work. This is not just a human plan. This is God bringing about his great rescue mission. Uh, and if there is a God of love, and if he does care for the human creation he has made, and if he is concerned to bring us back into relationship with him, to know him and to love him, and to serve him. Well then of course he could predict it. And of course he could govern the whole process so that his will is carried out perfectly and accurately to demonstrate to us all 
his great compassion and mercy and love. So we're not dealing with fiction here. We're dealing with a real man who really died and really rose again. We're not dealing with sort of theological ideas or philosophical speculation. We're dealing with a God who loves us enough to come and take our humanity and carry that humanity to that most appalling death on the cross. But that still hasn't answered the question why, and that's what I want to devote our last few minutes to. Why? Why does he do this? And in order to answer that, let's focus in on verses 4 to 6 of our passage, because this is where we have the explanation of the cross. See, it's a wonderful thing that in the Bible, God not only tells us what he's going to do and what he's done, but he tells us why he's going to do it and why he's done it. And that lifts it from simply being a record of what happened in time. It is that, but it's more than that. It's God's own explanation of God's own activity. He inspired the prophet. And because the prophet saw it all happen so many years before it happened, we know that this is God's word, not just a human word. It's not just that he was a far-sighted seer and he had this amazing idea. It's that God inspired him and taught him what was going to happen because the word of the Lord endures forever. I want to start this last section by looking at verse 6, if we may please, verse 6, which says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the two alls there? We all have gone astray and he's laid on us all the iniquity. There's an inclusivity about this. So what he's saying is true of every human being. The wandering sheep that's referred to in this verse is you and me. And it's not an accident that we've wandered away. There is a deliberate, determined turning away. It is something that we have chosen to do and it's endemic in every human being. It explains why we get so frustrated that we can't live up to our own highest ideals. It explains why when God says to us, love me with all your heart, we tend to say, but I want some of my heart to love me. And I want to be governing my own life and directing it in my own way. And of course God has given you freedom and he's given you gifts and he's given you abilities and skills that he wants you to use for your benefit and the benefit of others and the glory of God. But at the root of it all, we prefer to go our own way rather than God's way. Now the point is, this is God's world. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything that we have. We are his creation. And if we live in his world as though it belongs to us, and we choose not to let God be God in our lives, then we are really shaking our fist in the hand of God in the face of God. It may not be that it feels like that, but in effect it's what it is. See, if God, if somebody gives you something really uh, wonderful, maybe resources to large amounts of money and facilities and everything that you could possibly want for your life, you never thanked them and you never turned to them. You never had any relationship with them. You just took, 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 but you never said thank you. What would you think of someone like that? And yet, that's what we often like, isn't it, in this world. We take all the good things God gives us. We get very cross when there are things don't work out the way we would like them to be. 
We want to make a success of our lives, but even if we, want to, if we make a mess of them, uh, we want it to be our own mess. We want us to be in charge. And we have no need of God in our lives. That's the story of so many people in the 21st century world. I don't need God in the equation. That's the human story. But you see, choices have consequences. The sheep that goes astray has no guaranteed provision of food or water, no defence from predators, no company, no comfort. The straying sheep is solitary, separated and very vulnerable. And we're not like that physically, but we are like that spiritually. All of us by nature, separated from God by our wrong choices, running our lives our own way, without reference to God and his commands. It has an effect. That's why there are the frustrations. That's why life is so difficult for so many of us. That's why mistake upon mistake makes life so complex. And yet, through it all, the most recorded track, I gather, of any popular song in the last 30 years is I did it my way. See, that's the human spirit. And it, there is a good thing in that. God wants us to be not independent of God. He wants us to develop ourselves and the gifts he's given us and the characters that we are. We're all different. And he does want us to live our lives. But he wants us to live them his way. Because when we live them by the maker's instructions, then life begins to work. Then the relationship begins to click. And as we seek to love God, we find his love flowing into our lives more and more and flowing out from our lives to other people. Now, this doing it my way is the meaning really of that word up there, iniquity. The iniquity of us all. And the wonderful thing is, you see, that although our iniquities would cut us off from God and we wouldn't be able to be in relationship with God, in the cross of Jesus, God has done something about this. Do you see what it says? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we were translating that really literally from the Hebrew, it would be, the Lord has gathered up together and put on him the iniquity of us all. I think that's a lovely picture. You think of all the sin of human beings all around the world, my heart, your heart, the lost Garden of Eden, the blighted lives that have been caused by our rebellion. And God comes in Jesus and he, it's as though he hoovers it all up. He sucks it all up and he says, I'm going to place this upon my own son, upon his shoulders. He's going to carry this iniquity because it has to be punished. There has to be a price that is paid. Otherwise, God would not be God. He could not be righteous. See, sometimes people say, well, if God loves us so much, then surely he won't worry too much about our failures and our faults. He'll just sort of brush them under the carpet and say, oh, that's okay, don't worry. But then he wouldn't be righteous, would he? He wouldn't be just. There would be no justice in the world. There would be no hope of righteousness prevailing. So, what we've got to recognise is that each of us needs our iniquity, our sin, to be dealt with. We, uh, we attempt to say to ourselves, well, I'm not as big a sinner as other people. That's probably true. But the question is, is the virus of sin in me? Uh, is that rebellion there against God in my life? Uh, and it's not, you know, that I have to have a long list of all the offences. I always think it's a bit like driving a car 
And if you're driving the car and a, a, a sharp stone uh, sort of uh, pops up from the road, it only takes one stone to shatter the windshield. Uh, when it's happened, it's happened. And all the transgressions and iniquities of our lives are constantly shattering the windshield, as it were, constantly separating us from God. Now, here is the wonder of Good Friday. God comes into this situation and he takes up our weaknesses, our pain, our sorrow, our diseases, and throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus is doing that. Can we have a look at verses 4 and 5? Do you remember how in the Gospels, Matthew tells us that Jesus drove out evil spirits with a word and uh, he healed all the sick and he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. See, this is what Jesus is doing in his ministry, in his earthly life. But then do you see the climax of it in terms of the cross? He took our pain and bore our suffering, our suffering. We thought he was being punished by God. Yes, he was, but not for his sins, but for our sins. And then you get this wonderful exchange in verse 5. And to me, this is the heart of the whole thing. You get the contrast between him and us. Do you see? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, this is the heart of the Christian message. Uh, that Jesus has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. When he was pierced by that crown of thorns and by the nails in his hands and feet and by the soldier's spear, that was in order that we might be set free, that the price might be paid, that the punishment might be taken. And he could take that punishment for the sins of the whole world because this is God, the God-man, doing something that is an action of God which has infinite value and eternal significance. I couldn't die for your sins. Of course not, because I've got sins of my own to die for. You couldn't die for my sins. But if there is a perfect, spotless man who never sins and who is at the same time God in human form so that everything he does has infinite and eternal repercussions, then it is possible for him to deal with the problem of our, of our rebellion and our evil and to bring us into relationship with God. The punishment that we deserve was on him in order that we might have peace. And so, at the heart of Good Friday, and this is what makes it Good Friday, is this simple understanding of all that we are being met by Jesus in his righteousness and love as he dies in our place as our substitute on that cross. Only Jesus could do it, and he's done it. Only he lived the perfect life without sin. Only he could pay the penalty in our place. And he has done it. And this is the amazing grace of God. I mean, when you think of what that actually involved, think of the suffering he went through. Think of how he was prepared to go all that way out into the darkness 
in order that we might be accepted and brought home to God. What amazing mercy and love that is. What wonderful good news for all the world. You know, when he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was going out into the darkness to experience what we deserve to experience as rebellion, as rebels against God. But he becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is this great exchange that happens at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last thing I want to say is that the last word that he spoke on the cross makes that absolutely clear. John in his Gospel in the New Testament tells us that Jesus ended his life with a great shout which was one word in the Greek tetelestai in English finished, done complete. He didn't mean I'm done, I've been finished. He meant what I came to do has been accomplished. The purpose for which I came to live that perfect life, to offer it as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, it's been accepted by God. I have done what I came to do. I've rescued the human race and I've made it possible for people to be transformed by the power of God through a new relationship with God which I have brought about on the cross. That's the implication of it. And the visual image of it was that as he died, all the uh, three of the Gospels tell us that the veil in the temple, which was in Jerusalem, the veil was a huge thick curtain that was impossible for human hands to tear. It was very thick and very tall. It screened the holiest place of all in the temple from the ordinary worshipper. Nobody could go in there except the high priest once a year. That veil that kept people out because of their sin was wrenched down from the top to the bottom by the hand of God. Only God could do that. And the veil of the temple hung there, torn in two, as though God was saying to all the world as Jesus died, you can come in now. There's access into my presence. You can know me. You can know me as your loving father. You can know me as your forgiver can know me as the one who gives you life and vitality and direction and purpose and fulfilment. You can come in now. That is the offer that God made in the Lord Jesus. When uh, one famous British playwright heard this, uh, George Bernard Shaw, being preached in a meeting like this, it is said that he got up and stormed out of the meeting shouting, I will pay my own debts. And he will. And we will, if Jesus doesn't pay them for us. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And so what is on offer through the cross of Christ is not just beautiful thoughts or wonderful notions. It is a rescue. You know those poor people who suffered in that terrible ferry disaster in South Korea this week? desperate, what they need above everything else is a rescuer to come from outside and to so change their circumstances that they can be pulled out and rescued otherwise there would be no hope it's a very vivid picture of the world without Christ and yet the cross is the means by which he comes to rescue us and to lift us up and to renew us, to cleanse us and then in his resurrection power to give us newness of life.
Well, that's why it's Good Friday. I'd like to suggest we pray together and uh, maybe I can lead you in a prayer. Some of us may be at the stage where we're just thinking about this for the first time and um, this church runs a, a course called Christianity Explored which would be a great thing to sign up for to understand more about the Gospel and to be able to uh, ask all your questions and uh, think things through in more detail. It's just a very informal but very helpful course. And uh, some of us may be want to just have a word with God and to thank him again. Maybe for the first time that he died on that cross for me. Not just for our transgressions, but for my transgressions. Not just for our sins, but for my sins. And to, as we thank him, commit our lives to him and ask him to live in us, to change and make us the people he wants us to be. Let's have a few moments in quietness as we reflect before God and then I'll lead us in a brief prayer. Do feel free to echo this prayer in your own heart if this is how you want to respond to God. Maybe you haven't yet reached that stage. But this may be appropriate for some of us to make our own prayer this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into this world for people like me. I confess to you that I have often gone my own way and sinned against you, haven't loved you, haven't loved my neighbour. But I do want to be in relationship with you, my Father, my Creator. Thank you that Jesus paid the price when he died on the cross for me. Thank you that I can trust you that your death will be the means of my forgiveness. And please come and live in me, Lord Jesus. In your risen power to change me from the inside out and to help me to walk in your paths all my days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus said, Those who come to me, I will never turn away. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Father, I pray that you will give to us all that assurance of sins forgiven and peace with God, and that this may be indeed Good Friday to us because it is the answer to our deepest needs, the answer to uh, the quest we have for significance and fulfilment. Thank you that it's all found in a right relationship with you, our loving, gracious Heavenly Father. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave yourself up for us all so that we might know freedom, peace and joy in our lives. Thank you for Good Friday. 
And as over the next two days we prepare and look forward to the great news that Christ is not dead but alive forevermore, that we may enter into the resurrection glory of this Easter time and know the newness of life that only Jesus can give. We ask in his name. Amen.